Welcome to Sodcast number three. My name's John Strykermeyer, and we're recording today courtesy of Jocko Willink, and we want to thank Jocko and his team for the support. Today, we're joined by our guest, a fellow SOG recon man, Nick Brockhausen. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tucker. Um, <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Indeed. So this will be one of our more uh, definitely uh, informative as well as entertaining uh, interviews. We've been looking forward to it for a while. Anyways, I'd like to start off with uh, reading from the first of Nick's three books. And again, these are books that are, are not only are they well-written, but they document our SOG missions during your tour of duty. And what was the total time at CCN, Nick, for the second and third tours? Uh, I think it was like 17 months. You know, on, on the total, ground. On the ground. Yes. And so uh, for we had the secret war for eight years. We had, uh, by 1970, we had three operational bases, one down south at CCS, one at CCC, Contum, and then CCN North at Da Nang. And you landed there in the fall of 1970? Right. And so the first book I'm going to go to stems with a mission. We refer to it as I was sentenced there (laughs) in the fall of 70. Indeed. So the first book that Nick has written that came out years ago has been reprinted, thankfully, and it is We Few. Again, excellent typewriting stories about the missions, and also, there's a lot of um, reflections about the unique relationship between Green Berets and the indigenous troops they work with. In this case, your brew on that team, RT Habu. Right. I like that. It's got a rhyme. The brew from RT Habu. RT Habu. Okay, never <laughs> we, we can make a good rap song out of that. We could do that. The second book, we have Whispers in the Tall Grass which is also available. Both are available on Amazon. And another read that continues on with more of the stories later into the tour of duty. And so today we will be focusing on these books, the stories, the man behind them, the unique personality. And fortunately for our readers that like the first two books, we have a third book that is in the process of being produced. Vagabonds, Tourists, in the heart of darkness, <laughs> darkness, <laughs> and that's just the perfect uh, uh, headline for another book that will go into missions that you ran and stories. It's it's basically the adventures I had with two or three of my other friends from <laughs> special forces for forty years after after we left the service, but before there were contractors that were vagabonds, people that went out there and basically built the industry. Indeed. That, uh, you know, that later became, you know, Blackweiser and uh, all the other companies. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. So um, in We Few, one of the, uh, uh, well, there's many compelling stories here, but there's one mission where your team was getting inserted into the DMZ. If I can interject something. Please, and stay close to the mic. Yeah. Most people don't understand. I did not write this these books as a great American novel, and they aren't. It's not an archival. It's not something that you know somebody's going to go look up and for research for their Ph.D. I wrote these books as a catharsis. I was uh, going through a difficult time in my life. I went back to 
to basically spend time with the guy I'd spent the two years running recon with. And uh, during that time, I wrote these two books. And I wrote them as a tribute to the people that I knew in that outfit and the people that had gone before me and came after me for that select group of men. That was all they were written for. It wasn't really written for the general public. I'm pleased that the general public finds them entertaining or, or uh, informative. But the books are really written for, for my peers. And I'm, the highest accolade I can get is from somebody who actually ran recon and goes, wow, you're man, you're spot on. That's that's better than getting the Pulitzer Prize. Indeed, I know the feeling. And and as a peer, uh, Nick arrived at CCN after I left a few months later. Yeah, all and, that bad uh, shit happened after he left. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and as a peer, uh, fellow recon guy, this book is amazing. Each book is uh, one I've gone back to reread because they're not only is it rewritten well. But the stories are compelling, and the way you articulate the relationship with the men you serve with, uh, from the Special Forces side, but even more detailed information I've seen anywhere on the relationship between a Green Beret and his indigenous troops. Oh, yeah. It was just yeah. outstanding. And so I wanted to start off with uh, one of the chapters from We Few, where uh, on this mission... R.T. Habu is going into the DMZ. And could you uh, just lay out, because on a team, and this team was just the two Americans, you and Mac, and explain who Mac is and the 1011 and then how many little people you had. And when we say little people, we say that with the term of endearment. Great endearment. Great Indeed. Endearment. Or talking about our indigenous people that, yeah. in your case, you're brew. Uh, in, in, in fact, I mean, like the, the brew team leader, had been fighting the communists for nine years. Nine straight years. They'd butchered his family, you know, he'd, and he hated the communists. And and he was, uh, while he was subordinate to our command, he was also a mentor to us on teaching us, you know, survival skills, uh, combat skills, and how to operate working with the, with the brew and that. He was actually, I think the closest thing you could call it would be like a, a war chief, in uh, in one of the uh, plains tribes, like the Crow, the Dog Soldiers, or something like that, you know, he he basically was the most effective combat leader amongst the Brew, and was treated as such, and we treated him like that. But he uh, he a lot of times would give us advice, you know, like one time when he was always amused about the fact that we always made Captain Manus very angry. And Captain Manus was the was CEO of Recon Company, Company of CCN right, right. at that time. And I remember one time he was chewing, he was chewing us up, Mac and I. He goes, oh, number 10, all time make Captain Manus buku angry. And he pointed at his testicles and he said, this is not the thinking organ. <laughs> Simple philosophy. What uh, wisdom, profound wisdom. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, we, a lot of times we got that. We, we had, well, yeah, not to get... Too far afield. That's that. okay. The the Montyards are a very special people. They were essentially an Iron Age tribal unit, and there were. Oh God! I used to have a great book, and somebody stole it from me. And if you're out there, I'm going to eventually remember who you are. <laughs> and it was all the ethnic groups of Vietnam. It's about that thick. You now, 
you know, army field manual yeah, yeah. with the, the vanilla cover, you know, and, and it outlined every tribe, what their marriage ceremonies were like, what the, the taboos were, uh, how they were marked, what kind of clothing they yeah. wore. I mean, all that. But the, the Montagnards were the hill people. Montagnard means mountain people in, in French. So it's, right. and, and they were they were considered by the Vietnamese, both the North and the South, to be less than, than human. And they did their dead level. Like a, a Montagnard in the South Vietnamese Army couldn't be an officer. They could be NCOs, but they couldn't be an officer. They, they could be an officer in the North Vietnamese Army, uh, but not in the South. But both sides tried to eradicate them as a people, both before before the war and after the war. You know, the they they were the people that uh, North Vietnamese used yellow rain on, you know, and, and nerve gas and tried to eradicate the the people of the highlands. So, but they were very special to us. They were absolutely excellent fighters, the finest you could find. Totally fearless and totally fearless. Well. When you, when you say fearless, most of us that are combat veterans know that term is overused. Right. You know, it's controlling your fears. You know, could they control their fear better than most people? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. More yeah. accurate. I say I like that. Yeah. And so they, on this mission, you still haven't explained who Mac is. Okay. So McLaughlin was the one zero. The one zero is a recon team leader. When, uh, when, uh, when Snake Adams went home and... Uh, Danzer took over Habu as the one zero. The very next mission they ran was the recovery for Doc Watson and baby son Lloyd to try and get their bodies back in that. And after that was over, Horton, who, who had been wounded really bad, there was uh, Danzer, Horton, and Mac, and I think Jimmy Johnson was still on the team at that. So he was like the one three or one four. Right. And when they went in to get Doc Watson and baby son Lloyd, they, they found the bodies hanging in the trees where the strings had separated. Right. They looked like they were asleep. They were only about 20 yards out. Yeah, that was were, the mission where the, the chopper was extracting. Right. Had the, had the SF men hanging from the rope. Sammy Hernandez, uh, right. his rope broke. He fell. He's the only one to survive. Only one to survive. Yeah. He was knocked unconscious, separated right. his shoulder. As the helicopter further lifted out, it was hit with something. It turned around and crashed into the granite <coughs> face or a mountain, killing everybody. Right. And this is where Habu went in for a bright light, which is a right. mission to recover down teams, or in this case, bodies. Right. So after they ran that mission, Mac took over as the 1-0 or the recon team leader. And I became the 1-1. One one. Now, there were, there were two other guys that were in the interim there. There was a guy named Steve Hank, and Steve, I'm sorry I didn't put you in the books. You should have been in there. And uh, and a guy named Ken Holmes that were also on Habu at, at that time. Ken eventually went up to become an AST right. up at the talk and was one of the best they had up there. Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, Habu essentially then became cored out with uh, Lemuel McLaughlin, Minimac, or the combat pygmy, <laughs> and Cookie, Robert Cook, and myself. And the three of us ran the longest time together. So sure. Mac was the, the team leader. Mac's job was to have the radio. The radio stayed with him so he could talk to Covey. My job was to fight the team as a unit. 
between Cook and I, we we basically fought the team as a unit. Yeah. And then Mac took care of the of the radio because I have a tendency when I'm hyperventilating to stutter on the radio. And Cook's from Georgia, and you know how they are. Nobody can understand them. <laughs> you know. So Indeed. Mac got it. So on this particular mission, uh, the first helicopter goes in, Mac gets off, and as your helicopter, you're on the second helicopter as it's descending. Um, reading from the book now, We Few. We aren't even on short final when I hear the pilot screaming, Abort! Abort! I look down where Mac landed and gets sick to my stomach. He's lying on his back, and right next to him is the trap door to a bunker concealed right at the crest of the trail. He has fallen on it and plugged the door. There are two NVA trying to crawl out of a side entrance and the yard shoot them. Worse yet, I can see about 15 other likely bunkers up slope on the opposite side. I am standing on the skid and I feel the ship start to gain power. I instinctually know that they are going to abort and pull up, which will leave Mac with too few men to save himself. I slam the barrel of my car 15 in the back of the pilot's head and his helmet, and I scream into the mic, put this fucking bird down where he is now. He chops power. In other words, he reduces power. We slam into the slope. We all jump in and are thrown clear. I land heavily. When I hit the ground, my ears feel like I just ripped them off. I still feel the headset when I jumped. The bird screams loudly as it winds up and is gone. Immediately, I get the yards in some sort of fighting perimeter where we can at least hold on or fight our way to better ground. I run up in a crotch and Max says, Why did you land? I told them to abort. He did. (laughs) There are bunkers all over the hill to our right, and eight of us can fight. A lot harder than five, I yell back. He grabs the radio handset. Go tie in the team and let me bring in some air. In this case, bring in tactical air. I work my way down slope where I see Zompot team member stand up and fire methodically he slants he fires like he is on the rifle range he is standing upright just like we did at the range it is almost amusing because he looks like a poster child for the nra i think he's shooting at nothing he is new on the team and this is his first mission i yell at bob and tua to see what he's firing at a grenade goes off over by where Tua is, and he yells at the team because he thinks one of the team has thrown it, and it fell short. I run over to where Zapod is, and down the trail, I see the crumpled bodies of three NVA with a whole shitload of canteens on bamboo poles lying amongst their bodies. They had just walked up the trail. He just stood up, yelled something like, 
hey, and dropped all three. That's pretty good discipline. Or he just got lucky. We are starting to take ground fire now, and the tempo is picking up. I run back up slope. Well, I trudge up slope like. <laughs> I use the team to tie in closer, and I am working my way back up to where Mac is beside the bunker. Nearby, I can see a group of NVA in green khakis break from cover by some rocks to his left front. They start to try to flank him. Kuman and Bong drop all of them. Who make it to a small wasp below? Mac. Kuman throws a grenade down into just as a thick grenade comes lofting out of the wash, lands where Mac is, and explodes. I hear Mac scream, God damn it! That's just unbelievable. Well, how did Mac do with that? Well, you know, uh, let me start with DM10. Indeed. DM10 is demilitarized zone number 10 target. And it's it, the, the terrain is an old caldera, like the inside of a crater mm-hmm. with uh, overgrown brush on the top and a trail that ran down to the center of it. We knew there was a division plus in that area. And what I didn't know at the time, but Mac knew, and he didn't want to inform me because he knows that I have delicate feelings, was that <laughs> they were inserting two other teams to try and the whole the whole concept was basically stir them up till they get up on the radio and they start talking so they can RDF them, call back to Guam, roll out the B-52s, they get a pedicure on the way over and bomb the place into snot, you know. <laughs> And, and there were air packages that were prepared for the other two teams that were on the outside and adjacent to our no-bomb box of 6x6. Six six. I didn't know this at the time, which is why when the cavalry showed up, we had everything. We had A1Es, we had fast movers, we had the choppers, you know. Every, I think I even saw Air Nook Mom go by. <laughs> but uh, there was a lot of air available to us that day. And our, our mission was to go in and basically try and stir them up, get, get them up out of the hole. We knew that they, and we went in at pot time and every day in, in Vietnam between such and such an hour and such and such an hour. Similar siesta time. It's like siesta time in Mexico. So they, they were at pot time. We landed right in the middle of their nook mom lunch <laughs> and all hell broke loose because when they came in, Mac bailed out on the right-hand side, and he hit the, the opening to the bunker, and it caved in underneath him. So he's laying on his back like a ninja turtle, scrambling around. And I didn't know it, but he had told the, the lift, abort, 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 because he realized that there was no reason to bring more people in there. We were all going to die. Well, he's on the ground with three people, not five, himself and two other yards. And I had myself in four yards on my chopper. So, you know, the, there was no time to explain to the, to the pilot that, who, by the way, I met later, years later. And he goes, oh, yeah, I remember you. You're the crazy son, but stuck a gun in the back of my head. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, I jumped a gun. There was no way to, to get the immediacy across to him. I had to threaten him. So I stuck the gun in the back of his helmet and landed a chopper now. And the reason was, 
it was getting ready to turn very bad, and, and Mac and the other two yards were dead unless we got on the ground. So we got on the ground, and, you know, it just, uh, when I said it was pock time, everybody was awake five minutes later and shooting at us. <laughs> you know, I remember looking up, it, when you look at the terrain there, it's, it's a huge, just imagine a crater wall that's been eroded, and, and the center cone has been eroded, and the, where we were was in that center cone. And that's where there was like within 20 meters, there were four bunkers, all of them manned by NBA. And on the slopes where everybody woke up, there must easily another 100 to 150 just on that one side that suddenly woke up and started shooting at us. Then they they couldn't get at us because we got into a gully and we finally rolled down into that because we were taking fire from everywhere. We rolled down into this gully, and they started organizing so they could mass on us. Because they know if they don't mass on us, the Air Force is going to come and blow everything into smithereens. So the whole idea is to get on top of you, grab you by the get belt buckle, the belt. and and stay with you. So about that time, you know, we were they they came up. They started throwing grenades uphill at us. And one of the grenades went off right next to where Mac was. Well, I'm trying to tie in the team and get a. I can't do anything on the ground. The, the guy who's killed more people in this world is the guy who invented hit the dirt. Because you can't see anything from the dirt. You've got to get up and move. If you can't get up, shoot, move, and communicate, you're dead. So I'm up doing what I'm supposed to do, which is fight the team. And I go back up and I'm going, oh, my God, that landed right where Mac was. So I, I went up to check on him, and he's got that handset cupped in his hand like this. He's leaning against his rucksack, and he's got his pants down. And he's handling his junk. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> you know, this is the coolest son of a bitch in the world. We're in the middle of a fire fate, and he's masturbating. <laughs> well, what had happened, the grenade had gone off. And it nicked him on the inside of his thigh right next to his junk and that. And he was just checking to make sure the equipment was there. Didn't want any brain damage. The, yeah, no brain damage. Yeah. Right, yeah. So he, he's, he looks at me like, you know, what are you looking at? And Covey keeps calling, you know, calling us saying, what, where do you want to, you know, where do you want us to lay it in and that? And I took the handset away from him. I said, you'll have to give him a minute because uh, my one zero is busy fondling himself and I think he may be masturbating. <laughs> So and Dick Cheney was uh, was the uh, was the, the covey and he's yeah, going yeah. well we'll take that into account <laughs> put him back on the line oh, man. so it was a, a bad target a lot of lot of bad people oh yeah you know we had uh, let me just go because this yeah. this is the next couple of paragraphs you're still there we both look upslope to our east and the platoon we had driven to ground has been joined by about 10 more stallard lads and is getting ready to assault us. The yards are dropping them like they were ducks in a shooting gallery. But the small arms fire isn't slacking off at all. We are getting heavy fire from both sides now, and I can count at least six bunker openings and with muzzle flashes. Some of them are only 40 yards away. Mother McRae. This is bad, bad, bad. We are tucked into a warsh, so they can't really get at us. But if they can lay enough fire on us, they will be able to keep our heads down. Then they will hit us with the B-40s 
and brushes. That will be the end of R.T. Habu, the end of my dreams of becoming president and any dreams I have of ever becoming a porno star. Mac yells at me, the guns are on the way, the slicks are about 10 minutes out, hang on. Oh no, Red Rider, I think I will just give up. Maybe they won't put me in a tiger cage with someone who is more interested in his future as a breeding stud. Crump, crump, the high explosives go off, west about 50 meters. Oh great, someone brought a mortar to the party. How novel, now we are all really fucked. They can reach us in the wars with that. I'm trying to figure out some great tactical wizardry that will allow me to get out of this alive. But all I can come up with is becoming invisible. I look over at the torn bodies of the two NVA we shot coming in. I am wondering if I can fit into one of the uniforms I did. and slip away into the crowd. I'm wondering. <laughs> I remember reading how some plainsmen had escaped from a war party of Sioux by crawling inside a dead horse carcass and concealing himself. I look around. Nope. There aren't any horse carcasses here. But there are plenty of pissed off Indians and they are starting to get organized. I hear the unmistakable brrrr of a minigun and the slope in front of me erupts causing bunches of the green khaki tribe go down. Rockets and 40 Mike Mike start hitting the slope to the rear. I have my Irk 10 emergency radio and I can hear Covey talking to another ship that has been hit and gone down. The crew is out and slicks from the package are dropping in to pick them up. The Cobras bank up and to the right and a pair of spads come in, guns chewing up the real estate. Get down, Nate, Mac yells. I didn't see the canister drop, but then a rolling firestorm erupts in front of us and envelops any of the survivors of the assault force who were splashing into the bunkers. There is a blast of heat behind me and I can hear someone screaming. It is too far away to be one of us. Fry, you little rice-eating ant. Napalm sucks oxygen out of the area, making it hard to breathe. I don't notice because when I'm scared shitless, I have a tendency to hyperventilate. So, oxygen isn't yet a problem. The mortar has stopped. Maybe we got lucky. Very lucky. Incredible writing, too. Well, what... But most people don't understand. I mean, it sounds like some action movie. But people don't understand the concentrations that the North Vietnamese had in the demilitarized zone at that time. They were moving division south. And they had base camps. They had bunker systems. They had uh, refit facilities. I mean, all and our job was to find them. We had to, you know, our, our specific mission, we were trying to find a pipeline that they were supplying their tanks because we were seeing, we were seeing T fifty four tanks south of the demilitarized zone, and nineteen Norm- seventy or 70, early seventy one. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, there was, uh, you know, the 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 Soviet tank normally carries a fifty five gallon drum on the back. Actually, there are forty four gallon drums that are on the back. Two of them for spare fuel supply, and they also used uh, diesel fuel. They injected on top of the heads and create a smoke screen using the exhaust in that. But none of the tanks were showing up with those 
extra fuel tanks on the back. So they had to be getting fuel from somewhere. If they weren't bringing it down by the trucks, then we had to figure out how they were getting the fuel. And that's when we eventually stumbled onto the pipeline that they had run from, actually there were three of them, three pipelines. Three? All, that, were they all in the DMZ? Uh, they came, came, one skirted over through Laos and came down. Into the MA one, one, Yeah, one came down to the DMZ, and I think one of them really went way around and down south and actually entered almost just above where CCC's northern boundary was for their oh, AL. okay. But the, the reason we were there was basically that you're doing in recon. Find out what the other guy is up to. We knew there was high concentrations in there. But when you read that particular chapter, it sounds like, you know, we there's thousands of people against it. Well, the North Vietnamese are like the, the Germans in World War II. You beat the snot out of them and then sit down to reload, they're going to come back with a counterattack. And that's just what they did. As soon as we hit them and we landed in the middle of their nook mom party, they got <laughs> they got organized immediately and started putting maneuver troops on us from out of those bunker systems. And what I found out later was all the air that had been laid on by Pappy Boudreaux and, and the other people in the launch site was actually in preparation because they figured we were going to get our tit in a ringer and we were going to need all the air support that we had, which is... The keynote of this chapter is basically the use of combined arms, which is something that we developed in Vietnam and is still used today. Air power and overwhelming technology makes up, it's a force multiplier. You can use a small group of people to do more than a division could do. You know, eventually the projects, we, we, made the North Vietnamese redirect 50,000 troops just to take care of us. That's 50,000 troops that weren't fighting our troops on the battlefield and weren't invading us out. They were there specifically to protect their logistical lines from a mall and the night visitors, which would be us. Indeed. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, very, it was a tough, that was a tough target. And I ran... DM-10, four times. Four times? Four times. And, and All for my, a fuel line? No, no. You talk about, it was a major headquarters. I mean, that, that whole wall, north, north and eastern wall, was nothing but bunkers and tunnel wow. systems and everything. I mean, I don't think anybody really got in there and did a survey of it unless... You know, the Cubans snuck in there looking for porno magazines. He might have gone through the tunnels. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it was a real uh, developed complex. They had storage caves. They had uh, bunker systems. for, And uh, they had a major uh, coaxial cable that was uh, connecting everything. And they had any aircraft everywhere. 37 millimeter, 57 millimeter laid down all the 12.5. All protecting that area. It's, it's a key area. Obviously, we wanted to know what was going on in it. So we we went in DM-10, DM-9, and I think DM-6 was just above that. Those three targets, I ran DM-10 four times, and my cumulative time on the ground was less than three hours. Oh, my God. Um, and everyone was like this. A everyone death was situation. like this. I mean, this, this was the worst one, was the one with Mac. But, I mean... Uh, I remember one time we got in, our total time on the ground was like 16 minutes. And by the time 16 minutes were up, 
I had expended half the ammunition I had taken in with me. So yeah. it shoot did you in. ever did you ever find any the fuel line? I I think uh, I think it was Jesse Campbell and Keith Larson and uh, McDowell. Uh, McDowell was yeah. Jesse the ones here with Idaho. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think team. I think they were the ones that that found the pipeline the first time. I have to give Jesse a call. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the thing, like, thing with Jesse is don't talk to him on the radio because <laughs> it takes him a while <laughs> to explain what's going on. <laughs> but he gets the job done eventually. Yeah, well, the, yeah. <laughs> in the second book, there's a chapter about uh, called "The Night Before Christmas." And we about, will get to that shortly. Uh, about him and Larson and, um, uh, and McDowell. McDowell. But like another aspect of We Few, your first book, Nick, uh, I want to get back to the story because one of the things you capture here is the action and the sense of, of what it's like to be on the ground. And then you throw in a couple of your little twists, your, your little editorials of what you're thinking while on the ground, while under fire. And finally... Like you said, for those four times you're in that target, you're only there for three hours. And in this case, your first time in, Mac, the one zero tells you, hey, the birds are on the way. So you're checking things out and you're going to be out in the first slick. So I'll take it from here in the book. The first slick comes in, slams down about 10 yards from me. I run toward it and start throwing little people on board. I'm about to dive in when it is suddenly up and gone, I stand there, momentarily with feelings of despair, betrayal, and a big, oh shit. However, I haven't got time for hurt feelings. I have to get back to where Mac is, or they will leave me here, and all these pissed off people will blame me for ruining their lunch hour. I run over to Mac, and the second bird slams into the ground, almost on top of us. We dive inside. Kuman lands on top of me, and we start to lift. The door gunners on both sides are burning their guns out on full auto, and they have plenty to shoot at. The NVA are trying to get right on top of us because the guns and the spads are killing everything except what is about 20 yards from the chopper we are on. You can feel the rounds hitting the chopper. A staccato metal thunk, thunk, thunk. From where I am lying on the floor, I can see an NVA officer running at us with a pistol and yelling at his men. Shit, this boy must have watched too many war movies. I wonder how he can run that far, that fast, having such big balls. I just don't know how he did it. I can't get my gun up because I'm half lying on it. So I just pulled the trigger and let it rip. We are lifting, and I can't see if I got him. A grenade flies in. Mac kicks it, and it rumbles out the side of the bird. Another grenade bounces off the gunner's helmet and falls out. The gunner swats at his face with one hand, like he's shooing away some nasty bug, but keeps burning up the gun with one long continuous burst the engines are screaming up to full power and i can see rounds chewing up the overhead and inside the bird then we are up and away there is another sudden rush of hot air 
from ordnance going off real close, and the chopper jumps up from the concussion. But we are still gaining altitude, pulling free, and getting some sky, getting up and beyond the 12.5 millimeters, and all those other weapons trying to pull us back down. Just another day in SOG. Well, I mean, you know, it sounds like it's unique, but it's not. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you ran missions the same way. You know, you, you know, the, the the idea that you have an overview of everything that's going on in combat—that's bullshit. You see what's in your immediate vicinity, and then talking to others, you eventually put together the whole picture in that. Um, but most of what I remember of that target is confusion, fear. Uh, anger and uh, and buku it, enemy and it was a lot. It was a lot. I saw, you know, like I said, when I said we were, they were rushing us, when that NVA officer came up, he had about eight guys with him that that were still standing. The the door gunners had chopped up the formation that he was leading in that, but uh, he had about eight guys still with him. And I, to this day, I admire his, his uh, courage. Oh, yeah. He stood there like with that Marikov pistol and was firing at us. And I think he's the one that threw the grenade that Mac kicked out. Oh. Yeah. I mean, that, the guy was hard charger, man. He was, uh, and I did, I had, my gun was laying underneath me. So I just reached down with my thumb. It was like sticking out in front of my face like that. It was pointing at him. So I just pulled the trigger. Bad move because I couldn't hear shit afterwards. Right. From the, from the gun and that. And I think Kuman may have nailed him. You know, he was right next to me, and I heard him firing. But uh, the guy to this day, hey, here's to you, Nugent. I hope you made it. Indeed. You certainly deserved it. (laughs) Well, at that point, in the early time at CCN, you were still carrying a a Car 15 before you transferred over to an RPD later in your time, right? To do what? You were carrying a Car 15 later... The well, months later, I, you I never parent. transferred to the RPD. We had an RPD and on the team. On the team. Okay, I wasn't sure. That's yeah. why I asked. Well, I sawed off our RPD. What's that right. little conniving Cuban stripped all the parts out? That and then we got to give the conniving Cuban a little yeah. ink here. Yeah. That's Bob Castillo. Bob Castillo from uh, at that time RT Idaho also. Yeah. yeah, a real troublemaker. Well, you know, but that, a hell of a recon. That team man. had a certain ambiance in the criminal side. <laughs> they did. Yeah, yeah uh, everybody had. Different weapons and that. And I love the S4. He'd go up there and go, I want a Swedish cave with a silencer. I'd give you one. I want six Thompsons and a case of 45 ammunition because I'm feeling a little belligerent today. I want to go to the raid. You got it. Yeah. You know? But we they had the RPD, and the RPD was great. Sawed off. It slowed down the cyclic rate of fire a bit because when you, you cut it off just ahead of the gas port. And uh, so, but it, Produces a gout of blue green plasma out the end of it that scares the <laughs> shit out of everybody, especially at night. <laughs> but the problem with the RPD was links because the RPD uses a, a continuous belt. It's hooked to see the M60 and the 242, they use a disintegrating link. In other words, uh, when the round is fed into the chamber right. and it ejects, that link is thrown out. And you could put a belt together by putting those little links together. But with the, the RPD was like the German. They had the half moon um, link. Right. And then you just slid the shells in. And they were hard to get. So everybody carried something to put your used belts in. 
as you used them up. I kept a Claymore bag that would broke out on, on the side so I could shove the used links in there. And I carried the RPD on specific targets. Okay. If we were doing a bright light. Right. I carried the RPD. We needed the firepower. No food, no water. No food, no water. You're gonna. You're not gonna need that. You're not gonna be here long enough for that. You're just one survival ration, usually a PIR that you kept in a inner thigh pocket to keep it hot. And, <laughs> right. And yeah, and and water, but none of the extra rations. You're going in. You want every grenade and every round of ammunition you can get. So I, I carried. A, when I carried the RPD, I also carried a Car 15 at the same time. Is that right? I carried the RPD and I had one, two, three, three fully round loaded drums on me, hanging on me, and one in the gun, one in the gun, and then I carried a Car 15 slung in the back, and a AK vest with six magazines in it, thirty round magazines, because eventually you're going to run out of ammo on the, because everybody on the team carried an extra belt for that machine gun, right? So I had on the ground. Somewhere around fifteen hundred rounds, <laughs> belted up if I needed them. Oh yeah, but and I had another, you know what, uh, six six times thirty, uh, hundred and eighty rounds for the, for the car. car fifteen. I I switched from the car because uh, somebody stole my sawed-off shotgun. I I taught myself how to load the RPD with one hand, reload it, mm-hmm. and I needed something other than a pistol to protect myself when I was doing that. So I I'd, I'd gotten a, an old coach gun. 12 gauge double barrel. Right. And the Filipinos up there sawed it off and made a like extension for your wrist and that, so it took the shock up. And I kept that in a slide holster behind my back. And I carried 25 rounds of, of shotgun for it. Uh, so my, most of them double out buck and, and slug. Right. Yeah. Because if you need it, if, if while you're changing magazines, you have. Somebody runs up on you, you got to have something to defend yourself. I actually ended up taking the. Uh, the 12 gauge shells apart and instead of putting double out buck in there i started putting um either nickels or the or the 10 10 dong piece right the the brass 10 dong piece actually held together really well when you fired it and it in inside eight feet it would cut a man in half i know that for a fact yeah you know it it will kill a man (laughs) and cut him in half one barrel wow yeah so but, different weapons for different missions, yeah. Well, I want to go to your second book for a couple more chapters here. And uh, uh, the second book, of course, we're talking about it, Whispers in the Tall Grass. Chapter 5, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so set us up a little bit about uh, what the night before Christmas, what the mission was, right. and then how Jesse Campbell's uh, enters into your... Yeah. into your experience there first of all i want everybody to know that i no longer correspond with any of the people in that team <laughs> i don't hang out with them they don't come to my my family affairs and most of them are still down south all right rt idaho good team uh jesse campbell was the uh one zero at the time one zero i think mcdowell was the one one now, uh, George McDowell, if you can imagine somebody who has all the temperament of a gutshot Wolverine and a stick of dynamite, <laughs> perfect good description of him. If he's not breaking something, he's destroying something, punching somebody out, really good recon guy. Yeah. Keith Larson, 
who's uh, from my home state of Minnesota. Um, really, really nice guy. Another good recon man. And I think um, Mariano or Ramonde, one of the two was on there. And anyway, they're, they get the mission to go out there and uh, it's a static. They're going to sit on top of a hill and become a carbuncle in the North Vietnamese supply chain. Get there, they got to eventually mass on them, run them off. So they're on top of this hill. They they get set up to go in. They naped it. They prepped it with the guns. They realized when they got on the top that there was there had been a major unit there. It hadn't been a couple of trail watchers because they found twenty or thirty bodies on the top of the hill, and they were all dressed in the same uniform, had the same markings, and that. So they they knew that they they'd hit the gold mine, so to speak. Now, where they were at, you could see a major trail connection for the Ho Chi Minh Trail going, uh, I think it's Highway 91, east of the Ashau, in that area there. And they were moving troops down. Right. So they get up there, they get set up, and they they end up calling what we call a World Series. A World Series is an emergency radio call to to, to let everybody in the command know, I have more Targets. than a regiment in the open as a target. <laughs> Bring me help. So they, they called the World Series. They, there was an entire North Vietnamese regiment moving down this trail system. And on top of that was a special group that were all dressed in gray fatigues and that were obviously Caucasians. No kidding. The, either East Germans or Cubans or Russians or what? Because uh, the North Vietnamese used a lot of North um, uh, East Germans and Russians and Cubans as their advisors for right. the anti-aircraft and Chinese and Chinese. Well, Chinese are in everything. You know. Yeah, they. Uh, but they there was one special group that was moving down in the open where they could see them that had gray fatigues on, and Don Audie Murphy was <laughs> flying Covey. To understand Murphy, one needs to dig deep into the dark side. Uh, Murphy's up there flying around his motorized sports car and that, you know, and he's directing airstrikes for him. And about the time they get going and they're starting to really lay in airstrikes on this regiment in the open, out of the woods trundles a T-54 tank, which was part of the reason we were looking for pipelines was that tank had no spare tanks on it right it had no 55 gallon drums on the back of it it was and it was obviously far enough down they were getting fuel for somewhere and they destroyed that tank with with airstrikes and then of course Danang interrupts in the middle of everything to tell them that they want the team to go down there and get some pieces off that tank pieces Pieces, you know, to get the gun sights, you know, get us something to bring back that we can brag to the girls in the club, I guess. You know. And, of course, you know, McDowell's trying to suppress Jesse's, uh, you know, tell Jesse to do something, it gets done. You know, so he didn't want to go down the valley and the yards are all going, we go to the tank, we know come back. We, 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 we die down there. So they scratched going down to the tank and getting souvenirs for it. And they, they worked that. Perfectly. One one of the problems had when they went in, there was a twelve point seven machine gun below the slope from them, that was chewing up the aircraft coming in to resupply them. So they decided to get rid of it with hand grenades. 
So Keith is crawling down closer to the edge, trying to throw hand grenades over the edge and knock out this heavy machine gun. And it hits a tree and bounces back in front of McDowell's position. Who then crawls over to him to explain to him the idea of grenades is to kill the enemy, not the team. (laughs) This is called combat counseling. (laughs) But yeah, really good mission. Uh, they came back, and they were still all juiced up when they got back to, to Da Nang and that. We were sitting in the club. Well, actually, they started in the club, and then somebody told them I'd made a beer run, and I had three cases of Bomby Bomb, my hooch. So they ended up in my hooch for the after after the war celebration. Yes, indeed. And I got the whole story, and I, I put it in that chapter. Excellent, excellent mission by, by R.T. Idaho. Yeah. And Keith Larson, Jesse, and I went, and like Tilt and I, we're still friends to this day. Indeed. Because we, we've got pictures of each other in a hotel room with chickens. <laughs> and then moving right along to chapter five, there's this is the one when I read it, I had never heard anything like it. Ghost. Uh, ghost, or is that the one? Or which, Windows in the Past? Windows in the Past, yeah. With the little people and the snakes. Oh yeah, uh, we got lucky, Mac and I. We, we first of all, there's there's dry holes, which I only saw once, and that was this particular mission where you go in and you don't get any contact. It's it's like a three day walk through through the woods in that. Yeah, and uh, we got we drew this target. It was on the northwestern edge of of the of the DM going up where it climbs up into the Laotian Plateau. And uh, we went in. We were, they wanted. They just wanted to find out what was in the area because the, the last after-action report had been from 1967. 67. Somebody had been in that. And this is like in 70, 71. Yeah, yeah. So we, we draw the mission and we get up there and Boudreaux had been a 1-0. Who, he was the launch site NCO. He had been a 1-0 when that mission had gotten run in 67, 68. No, is that right? Yeah. But he wasn't on the team, but he, he yeah, remembered yeah. The, but he had the, the area. And he's, on the ground experience. And he's giving us a hard time. Yeah, of well, you know, the last people were in there. You know, they came out with their tail between their legs, you know, wild stories and all this. So Mac and I get geared up. We get get inserted and nothing. There's We found some tracks, found uh, mostly barefoot. You know, no sandals, no Ho Chi Minh sandals with right. the truck tires on the bottom, no Badaboot. These were barefoot natives, so they they had to be yards. So, and the yards are all spooky. They're like jittery. You know, you know something's going on, and you know, they finally get over by by Cumin uh, with Mac, and Mac goes, "Oh, my, what's going on?" And Cumin goes, "Oosh, number ten, snake people." Bad peoples, bad peoples. Yard, no like. Tahan, no like. Uh, and we're going, uh, okay. So I had to go back and check the team. And as I wandered to the back, I ran into Bong, the, the shaman. And he's the same way. He's like looking around. He's a, he's a lot more composed than the rest of them. But he's sitting there and I go, uh, Bong, what are the snake people? And he goes, don't say their name. Oh, why is that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So I'm starting to think of all these batches. I, I, I think they're headhunters because some of the brew and some of the sedang had not been headhunters that long ago. You know, back 10, 15 years before that, they were still taking heads. Is that right? Oh, yeah. 
Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think the Jirai were like that. So I'm, I'm thinking they're headhunters. Yeah, okay. The, but the yards are spooked. And we don't see any NBA. And I asked Bong, I said, how come no NBA here? And he says, uh, snake people. Snake people. Say, NBA, no come here. NBA, no come here. Snake people, bad people. You know, and you keep hearing it, bad people, number 10. And when we, we had found this cave that we were going up, we are winding our way up to this cut notch up to the plateau. And it was in the one wall of the, of the gorge. And it was probably 20 meters wide, maybe 10 meters deep. And at the back of it was this, it was all overgrown inside with moss and, and mildew and shit like that. There was a bunch of poles arranged, and there was uh, like the there was the head of a bear, a skull of a bear that was all covered over with mold, and there was a set of what looked like aviator uh, goggles hanging from a center pole, and some other pieces of equipment and bones that looked like human bones. So, and that's really freaked out the yards. Oh, shit, number two. I started to go in and take a look at it, and Kuma grabbed me like I was holding me back from the edge of a cliff. No, 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 number 10, number 10. So I pulled back and said, well, you know, whatever it is, let's keep moving. So we moved back up the, the, the gorge and we get on top, maybe a half a mile from, from where we found the cave and we found the remains of an old prop-driven fighter aircraft. We found an engine and then uh, part of the rear part of it and then the, the actual fuselage with the cockpit in it was separate, had separated from it with one wing. And I'm up inside of it. You know, most of our fighter aircraft, under the pilot's seat is a survival kit that has like a silenced 22 and they got emergency rations and there's a, a, a you know medical kit and gold in the form of chains oh, right. or And uh, why was that there? Coins. So I'm looking for that stash and I'm underneath <laughs> up underneath there and I don't find, I find a bunch of crumpled papers that looked like it was a map and a journal and that and no gold but laying on the between the runners and that is a, is a clasp knife and it says Langolai on it well Langolai is the official knife maker for the French army it, it means bumblebee and that the little back of the knife on the back strap is a picture of a bumblebee so I dug it out of there and I Stuck it in my pocket. I still have it to this day somewhere, you know. But uh, you know, and every time I feel bad that I've had bad luck, bad women, bad whiskey, I blame <laughs> it on the knife and the bad luck. Indeed. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we 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 found this old French aircraft. And we figured out we found part of a parachute and a shoe a little further from the airplane. We figured the guy bailed out, and the thing bellied in on the plane of jars up there and uh, they the bad peoples got him and either killed him or come across his body and they put the remains in that cave and that so we're we're finally when we find the aircraft they tell us all right get ready to be extracted and they direct us to an lz and that and we get to the lz and we get set up all the way there the yards are jumping you know, like, and oh, you've never God. seen that before. No, never like even that. Even when you're on the ground no. with, with contact eminent, you don't see that kind of hinkiness. Yeah, the the mountain yards, I mean, they could go on the ground and Dracula could be there and they wouldn't give a damn. Yeah. But whatever it was, <laughs> was spooking spook them in that. We get to the LZ and we you know, get set up and we're lifting off. 
As we're lifting off, I look back down on the LZ and there's two Montagnards. Primitives. They're still wearing loincloths. You know, one, one of them's armed with a, a crossbow with the, you know, the little uh, quiver and all that. And the other guy was carrying a Mat 49 French submachine gun circa the 1950s. Wow. And they had tattoos around their eyes and that. You know, like uh, like the, the Sedang sometimes tattooed themselves like that. And then... When we got back, Bong, the shaman, because uh, I had seen him, and he had been with me when I seen him, I had to go for a cleansing, where he took me a down cleansing? to the yard. Oh, yeah. Took me down to the yard hut, and they were burning monkey balls and hair or something and waving it around me, and, you know, putting <laughs> pennies on my back, you know, and chanting some sort of shit and that. And uh, Mac was, because I couldn't go, I wanted to go downtown, and no, 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 we got to fix your spirit. So that the the bad peoples don't take your spirit and hold it, and that you'll have to stay here and you'll have to drink this horrible concoction and get smoke shoved up your ass. And <laughs> meanwhile, Cookie and them are heading down to the pink house, and I I don't want to go, so they're uh, they're getting ready to leave, and I go, "You're gonna leave me here like this?" And they go, "Yeah, you know, it's your fault. You saw him." I said, "Really? Watch this." <laughs> I turned to Bong and I said, "I saw Matt." talking to those to the bad people and he gave them every Montagnard <laughs> name <laughs> that ended their trip to the pink house <laughs> they're sitting with me suffering through the oh you got to be cleansed <laughs> now we're really weird target very very strange i mean uh, obviously they were a Montagnard tribe but the uh, the other Montagnards didn't trade with them they didn't intermarry with them, and they were all afraid of them. And the North Vietnamese were afraid of them, too. Yeah, how was, many areas in, around anywhere in Southeast Asia that the NVA I, didn't go? I, I, I mean, can only remember one other place over on the East Coast in the DM, where another small splinter group in that were the same. Only these were real tall, Montagnard, wherever they came from, you know, probably Harlem. You know? <laughs> but they... Uh, but the only two places I remember in Vietnam total that where there was, we didn't operate in there and the North Vietnamese didn't operate in there for some reason. We didn't operate in there because there's nobody to go after. Right. You know, and the NBA didn't operate in there, I guess, because they sent somebody in there and they disappeared and they figured, well, we just won't go through there again. <laughs> yeah, you know, very, very strange target. Indeed. Yeah. And then... Um, I want to go back to your first book just a little bit here because... Um, For the indictment. <laughs> indeed. But the... Um, uh, get, bear with me a second here. Uh, because your first mission that for you is your first time on the ground with the team and uh, you're going into the target, there's firefights, and in your mind, it's just like... Uh, this is a pretty bad target. Then at the end of it, they uh, oh yeah, Matt. they explain to you that this an, is just this is an easy one. <laughs> and then uh, the other part too is like uh, I want to get back a little bit to your unique relationship with your 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 captain uh, because you're told that this is a volunteer operation, and so you finally after you go through your briefing. And the train, you get your briefing. I guess did you get your C your C and C briefing after you arrived at uh, Da Nang? 
Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. 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 The Trang was basically, you went to there, that was headquarters. Right. Right. And then you went to whatever project you'd been sentenced to. And uh, <laughs> you, when you got there, you got briefed by, you know, you get, you. I, I remember the day we arrived, we, you, you go up to the headquarters, up at the head shed. And they process in all your paperwork. You get to meet the sergeant major for the project. And, you know, the colonel gives you a little rah-rah talk. And then you get sent to either the hatchet company or S4 or Hickory, the commo section or recon. Right. Depending on which one you've been assigned to. And then my first meeting with Captain Manus was when I arrived down in recon company. Right. And so... <laughs> This is like, it's funny, but it also gives you a little bit of flavor of some of the characters that you were with there in Captain Manus. Well, you got to remember that Manus was a prior NCO. Indeed. Who had learned, gone to school and learned not to scratch his nuts with the salad fork and they made him an officer. Indeed. Right. So, but he's, I mean, if you can imagine a square faced, bull necked, blonde hair, you know, combat soldier. You know, and he'd, he'd been a senior NCO before and then got a commission to be a captain. Is there a ghost in the house? No. <laughs> you know, and so he, you know, he, he was in charge of recon company. And it was like, uh, should, should I relate it or are you going to try well, to Well, I like to get to the book because yeah. some of the language in it was just so funny. As So you're, you've arrived at CCN and they tell you to go down to the recon company area. And as we walk up to the orderly room, getting back to the book, we view, dragging our bags with us, our guide draws something about waiting outside in the shade until the company commander has a chance to talk with us. He sticks his head in the door and says something to those inside. He suddenly jerks himself out of the way just as the door bursts open and a body flies out. <laughs> Landing in front of us, the man begins to pick himself up, then falls back, face first, in the sand. He then manages to help himself up and staggers off towards the back of the company area. <laughs> we stare at the retreating form, wondering what this is all about. And then our heads swing up as the door opens a second time. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just is. This is another Larry. little insight, yeah. So a short, squat, blonde captain is standing in the doorway with his fist balled up. Without blinking an eye, he surveys us. He looks around as if expecting the body that had preceded him to still be there. <laughs> he has all the charm of a bouncer at an orphanage. He sticks out his jaw apparently in an attempt to punctuate his next statement. But it fails to delineate if this troll actually has a neck. He takes a breath and starts in. Welcome to Recon Company. I'm Captain Manus. But you may call me sir or motherfucker sir. Or just hide when you think I'm looking for you. I will be assigning you to a team just as soon as I can because we need warm bodies. This is a volunteer organization. If at any time you feel that you can't hack it, all you have to do is come in here and tell me or the sergeant major and we will reassign you somewhere else. Gentlemen, 
This is real important. So I hope you've been picking your ears instead of your ass. If you're too shaky to do this job, you don't need to be out there where you can get someone else killed. He pauses, which is good because I'm trying to figure if this is actually a human being. (laughs) He gulps a breath. His mouth settles into some sort of grimace that slashes across the square features like a watermark and continues. This is the extent of the briefing, welcoming speech, and pre-dark pep talk. Are there any questions? If there are, there better not be stupid questions because questions and answers time cuts into my leisure activities. So at this point, you're saying, I look at the sand and (laughs) then he turns to you and you've got a question. So what was your question? First of all, you got to understand, Larry, (laughs) the way you describe it is the way it's described in the book. You don't get the full effect. Okay, please fill When when Larry talks, he (laughs) says, you can call me sir, you can call me motherfucking sir, or you can just fucking hide when I'm looking for you. You know, and he's got this no neck. Yeah. And I'm sitting there going, I know what this squat bread's all about. And I immediately <laughs> suspected that he was former NCO. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, the polish is not there. This is not, a, you know, a, a, a military academy project or a product. <laughs> this is right out of the ranks. So I asked him, I said, uh, so uh, this is a voluntary outfit. Uh what was wrong with that guy? He wanted to quit. <laughs> so why, 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 why did he want to quit? Because he's a pussy. <laughs> and I said, but I thought it was a voluntary outfit. And he said, well, uh, let me. What's your name? And I said, Brockhout. And he said, well, listen, broken trout. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. obviously some kind of barracks room <laughs> lawyer, or you've got you know some sort of you know hidden agenda in that. I'm going to put you on RT Habu. You know, where you can be another burden to society. And maybe between the three of you, you can actually be a real team. So that's how I got assigned to R.T. Habu, right then and there. So when I showed up in the hooch. Oh, yeah. Jimmy Johnson and Mac are in there. And they're, they're, they're cleaning their guns when I walked in the door. And Shut the door. We don't want the sunlight in here. Why, Dracula in here with you? What? And they're cleaning their guns and they go... Mac looks at me and goes, let me guess, you've run into Captain Manus and you had a discussion with him and then he assigned you to us. I go, that's exactly what happened. He says, well, you either annoyed him or he sent you over here to see if, you know, he can make, if we can make something out of you. And that that's how I ended up. And then Castro came in right after that. Castillo. And, yeah, Castillo comes in and fishes a beer out of the refrigerator and that Mac was sitting there cleaning the Silence 22 and shoots the beer can and it starts peeing all over the place and that. And and Castro never even breaks breaks stride. He goes, well, that's that's real good. If you have anything of value, make sure these two don't get their hands on it because they'll bubbify it. <laughs> but that was, that was my introduction to Habu. Indeed. Welcome Jim, to the team. Jimmy Johnson and uh, and McLaughlin. Well, they must have signed you because he figured that you had you were going to add some kind of intelligence. In, in fact, I think Maynard said that. That'll make the collective IQ in that hooch three. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Larry's, and I still love the man. 
the deed. <laughs> well, people don't understand. I mean, the officers that we had, you know, people have read the book and they think that we're, you know, we're a bunch of disorganized, disrespectful, you know, uh, you know, out of control troops. And that. Well, we had a lot of respect for our officers. Because the they ones. they were victims in our own little demise and that you know, I mean they were fellow travelers and that and they were worse than us. <laughs> they had some captain come in one time. Hey, I think he was with the Marikal Division or something. And when he got there, he'd read Clausewitz and you know Tung Chu and knew all the arts of war and that. By God, he was going to straighten out Recon Company and get us back in uniform, make us act like an army unit and that. Unfortunately, he did this at the officers' club, and Manus, uh, see Manus, I think Taylor was there, Messenger Taylor. was there, uh-huh. and I think Lightning Wonderlick was there. Oh, they no. decided to <laughs> save his life, so they got him drunk, and they took him down to the to the Montyard shitters. You know the the, <laughs> the toilets with the fifty five gallon drums. They duct taped him and then stuck him inside underneath one of the holes. And by by morning, he was a babbling idiot. You know, they 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 had uh, he'd gone completely nuts, had a nervous breakdown and all that. And somebody asked uh, Manus after, why did you do that? Well, we didn't do it. Probably one of the NCOs did that. Yeah, right. Right. <laughs> you guys did it to save his life because we would have committed homicide on him. <laughs> we didn't suffer fools, but at the same time, we had a lot of respect for our officers. The good ones, particularly. The, uh, the good ones, yeah. And I, I, I think of the entire time I was there, I mean, in recon company, I can't think of one officer that was 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 a worthless piece of shit. And every single one of them was a good combat officer. And probably because of Manus. Or, see, who was there? Kimmel. Remember Kimmel? Yes, Larry. Kim, Larry, Larry, who the colonel complained because he said that we laid around drunk all the time so that he wanted recon to run PT. No. So the last day that Larry is in command of recon company before he leaves, he leads recon company on a run around the perimeter road. Yeah. Leading recon company wearing nothing but his boots <laughs> and a cigar. Recon never ran again. That was the end of that. You know, he eventually became a colonel. Larry did? Oh, yeah. He, he was, you know, Hunter Liggett? Yeah. He was the commander of Hunter Liggett. <laughs> he was also, uh, he told me he was the chief ranger at, at in the Grand Canyon. So, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I call yeah. up his office yeah. and everything. I said, I'd like to speak to the head ranger. Uh, who are you? I said, well, I'm a friend of his. Who do you think is the chief rank? Well, you know, Larry Kimmel. You mean the grounds manager for the North Rim? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, And it turned out it was his boss who yeah. was the head ranger, a woman. Oh, no. Who's actually. Yeah, there yeah. That, and I, I got on the phone with her. And now, Larry never answers the phone. Right. 20 minutes after I had that conversation with that woman, he was on the phone. <laughs> Don't ever call my office again. Don't ever talk to anybody. Do tell. Yeah. Uh, good 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 people though Bow Ray uh, Captain I, Gary Robb oh yeah but Bo Ray, first Dick time Thompson. I saw Bow Ray he was a second lieutenant he was yeah. washing the jeep I'd stolen the night, the night before. before right yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And of course, he stayed in and rose to a two-star general two star. over time. I think he was a three-star. No, I think he got out as a three-star. Left as a two. Trust yeah. me. There was another guy who was, uh, uh, was an NCO and became a, a, a major general in the Marine Corps. Allen or something like that? Sam Hall. He ran out of CCC. Oh, yeah? Yeah. 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 And uh, he rose high in the ranks of the Marine Corps. Yeah. And, he was uh, a general. I remember that. Yes, he was. Yeah. And then... Um, when well, Eldon, f- Eldon was a staff sergeant. Well, we were E4s together at FOB1 in the early days. And look at, look at Mo Elmore. You know? he, he was a half-assed decent staff sergeant and <laughs> he became a colonel. Well, we'll get back to a little bit of action here uh, regarding your very first mission where um, you just got on a team, you did your training, you get the go order, they changed things around, max the 1-0, you're the 1-1. And they did a multiple team insertion, or at least they wanted it to appear that way. And then you guys get into the target. And then uh, after the insertion, uh, you guys are on the ground. First night, you set up an RON. Right. And then you're on the ground for a while. And uh, I think the next day is when you begin to make enemy contact. Yeah, well, the other teams got in. They inserted three teams. All at once, which is... All, all at once, which is a no-no. I mean, yeah. and obviously it was Fubai because uh, Pappy Boudreau would never do that up at... Out of Quantree, Quantree, right. That was Dover in that crowd. But uh, <laughs> they they put us in. We were at the far, far end. We were the last team that went in. And the next morning, the other teams start getting rolled up. One right after the other. And we got, we got hit last. And it was... Uh, I mean, it was... Suddenly, we had people all over us, coming from everywhere, and uh, the the reason the, the the whole thing boils down to this: we were we were fighting for what I thought was our lives, that it was desperate situation, and uh, you know the yards were performing perfectly. I was doing what I had to do, and it was the first time that Mac and I had actually been in combat together, so it was a kind of a the Vulcan mind meld between the two of us. And we got done with the thing, and uh, Max telling me, he says, well, that, that worked out good. So what do you mean worked out good? We were alive, but I didn't think we accomplished anything. He said, no, it was a, this was training. This is a chance for the Montagnards to see how well you operated under uh, under stress before we get a tough target. Well, I'm looking at the thing. I mean, I, I was down. When we pulled out, I think I had like three magazines left. And I normally carried a, a load of anywhere between, well, I carried six 30-round magazines. And, and back then you had 30 rounds. We didn't have those luxuries. Yeah, we got them because Castillo, the, the, the Cuban. The Cuban. Found a source for them. <laughs> and we stole that source <laughs> away from them. And uh, we ended up with a truckload of the things. And everybody had them. Now, they were making them. You know, the Filipino marmers are making them up in uh Making thirty and forty round magazines up at the S four. Oh, is that right? And and they work pretty good. The, the even the forty round. The, the forty one round would jam. Yeah, I, I give it. I never used the forty. It's a round. long push for round. a spring. Yeah, but in this particular mission was basically. I thought it was a tough mission, and uh, Mac just basically says, "No, you did well. The yards like you. They they think you're number one. They like the fact you have dialogue when you're screaming." <laughs> and you know you're in it's like getting getting elected to boys club you 
But that was that was a, a tough mission, I thought, and soon proved. Uh, looking back on it now, it was a cakewalk by comparison. I mean, after I did my first bright light, right? That that's when I realized you know, that this shit could get real serious real quick. So your first bright light was how many missions into into your time with uh, Mac with uh, Habu at that time? I think the third or fourth. And so, what was the bright light for specifically? Uh, went in to get a team was shot up. You know, the the one zero was shot up. Uh, uh, the one one I think it's covered in there as blue eyes. The where the chopper went down. The the the, the one zero was thrown into the river when the chopper went down. We, the one one was shot up real bad, and we went in to find uh, the one zero and uh, and the crew. And when we got there, the the chopper had burned, and one the door gunner. All I remember about him, he had really brilliant blue eyes, and that was the only thing that was unmarked on him. He was completely charred up, burned right down to the bones. Oh. And he op- when I was went to check him out, he opened his eyes and no more eyelids. He you know they were just burnt crust there, and he opened his eyes and looked at me, and it freaked me out. And I went to give him give him a morphine, you know, to right, just sure. kill him, you know, because there's nothing there to save. And that Max stopped me. He said, "Save it. We may need the morphine later." Well, there's there's nothing there. He doesn't even feel pain anymore. It's all gone. And that uh, sometimes I close my eyes, I can still see that guy. You know? but uh, that was the worst thing about going in on aircraft was, especially if they burn. Oh yes, it's horrible, bad, bad scene. But that that was the first bright light was blue eyes. I think first, yeah, pretty sure that was the first one. Yes, according to the book. Yeah, that was that was the one that was west west of Da Nang because we launched out of uh, out of off the the PSP strip there. Right there at Da Nang. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of the lower targets in the Prairie Fire AO. Yeah, I mean, it was funny, you know, they would, Fubio was always getting socked in, right. weather-wise, and, that, and then they'd run things out of Da Nang, because you could still get out in the AO, and that. and a lot of times they, Fubio was in transition over something. The only launch site that ran like clockwork was Quantree, and that was because Pappy Boudreaux was up there. Who Nobody been, messed with Pappy. Oh, who was going to mess with the Buffalo? Yeah, <laughs> you know, Major Slatten was in charge, and the medic and Boudreau were giving him some kind of pharmaceutical cocktail. He didn't even know what century he was in. He'll sign <laughs> these papers, sir. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm running this place ever. Sure you are, but Pappy wouldn't let you go in if he didn't have enough helicopters to get you out. He wouldn't put you in. But bottom line, Fubai. They'd put three teams in and only have enough choppers and air support to get one out, and that's that's when and most of the uh, the bright lights, the hairy ones we ran were out of Fubai, or one of their one of their boxes and that. Yeah. yeah, and that after that first mission, I realized after the first bright light that that first mission really was a cakewalk by comparison, because bright light will tighten your ass up. Yeah. yeah. And again, you'll go in heavy, like you said, with an RPD, with your car 15 strapped to your back, and then in the early days you had your shotgun sawed off until somebody stole it. I would have taken in a mini nuke if I thought I'd get away with it. <laughs> I'm just, you know, that you're going in, you're going to shoot your way in, 
grab up all the survivors and shoot your way back to the helicopters, hopefully intact, and get out. That, that's bright light in its essence. Hopefully gathering up all the dead bodies. And that. I never, I think I did, went on one bright light where nobody was there. There's a lot of dead people. Right. We picked up a, a flight crew that was, I mean, no, they hadn't booby-trapped the place. They hadn't uh, set up an ambush waiting for us to come back. They just killed them and left. But usually there was lots of people there, and they were using any survivors as bait to try and kill more of you. Indeed. Yes. Um, I'd like to just go back. At the very beginning of your book, you talk a little bit about uh, the formation of where this all began and uh, the uh, what you talked about early, but the, the, the writing here captures some of the history and uh, let's like to take a few paragraphs to get into that to, for a little bit more reflection after this, if you don't mind. Yeah. This book is, is first of two detailing oh. the actions and experiences of a small group of Americans and their indigenous allies who were the backbone of ground reconnaissance to the Republic of Vietnam during the war. The unit that's described here was part of MACV SOG, Military Assistance Command Studies and Observations Group, or just SOG. In the eight years that it existed, the small recon companies that were the center of its activities conducted some of the most dangerous and daring missions of the war. Originally conceived as a unit capable of infiltrating the heart of the area controlled by the North Vietnamese in both Laos and Vietnam, it expanded its reach to North Vietnam, Cambodia, and a few other places best left unmentioned. During that time, companies never exceeded more than 30 Americans, yet they were the best source for the enemy's disposition and were key to U.S. military being able to take the war to the enemy through the air and on the ground. This was accomplished by utilizing new and innovating technology but also heavily relied on the ability of the individual team members being able to use tactics as old as those from the French and Indian Wars. In that process, this small unit racked up one of the most impressive records of awards for valor of any unit in the history of the United States Army. It came at a terrible price, however. The number of wounded and killed in action resulted in the computation of a life expectancy that was measured in a matter of a few months. Those missions today seem suicidal. In 1970, they seemed equally so. Yet, these men went out day after day with their indigenous allies, consisting of Montagnard tribesmen, Vietnamese and Chinese nuns, and faced the challenges with courage and resolve. After the fall of the Republic of Vietnam, the indigenous survivors face persecution, and in some cases, wholesale execution. Today, the Montagnard minority is still being persecuted by the central government as their traditional life is being robbed along with the resources of their homelands in the mountains of Vietnam and Laos. In the end, the communist regimes seem determined to wipe out these amazing people. And that's just a uh, little bit of a commentary. But first... It goes back to a, an aspect of the war of the little people we left behind and just how courageous they were. And what today is, is you have some reflections back on those times with those people. And I know we've had some Montagnard communities 
that are have been able to flourish in North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and I think there's one in, in Minnesota. I'm not sure about yeah. that one. Well, the one in Minnesota is also Monk. Not just uh, Montyard, but it's Monk. Monk also, okay. And, and the two guys that run Save the Dega people right. get all the kudos in the world. Those guys have done a magnificent job over the years. Actually, bringing the survivors and establishing communities here in the United States. And, and the communities have prospered. Uh, their children have gone to college. Uh, they, as diverse, they become doctors, lawyers. Uh, they own their own furniture companies. Uh, one of them is actually a 747 pilot, one of the children. Now. And they have a Green Beret. And, yeah. And, uh, and they've, they've become part of the fabric of our country. And we de- they deserve to be. You know, the, the yards gave everything to our effort. The yards stayed loyal to us. The yards, I, I had Montyards lay on top of me to keep me from being hit again. I mean, you, when you go through something like that, that's a bond with the people that you don't forget. Like I always tell people, I wear this bracelet because I will be brew until the day I die. And I am. And most of the guys I know, we, we, we have an undying love for those people and would, you know, would do anything for them. And they, in turn, remain loyal to us. What was unique about the unitoid was some of the numbers. In the eight to nine years, that from 1964 to 1973, basically, that the unit existed, uh, well, even they, when the unit ended, it still existed. Right, it still existed. But they, uh, you know, something like eight thousand six hundred people served in it as ground combat operations. That's not the ash and trash, the S four, the shoe clerks down in the train and that. But the guys who actually ran the missions in that eight years was something like around uh, six or seven thousand. And only 1,800 of us survived the war. 1,800 out of that number survived the war. I'll give you an idea of the casualty. I didn't know anybody. I think I knew one guy that never got wounded. Everybody else had wounded one, two, three times. Most of us was not even write it up. Because you'd always get in bomb, bomb trash and shrapnel and stuff in that area. You know, Unless you're like Chaffee and, you know, you got nine purple hearts because you're right up every single time you got scratched. <laughs> no, or like Kerry, he's another one. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, the most guys didn't go after it. Most of the guys weren't uh, uh, metal hunters, what we called them. Yeah. There's a few. I, I know one guy that actually wrote up his Silver Star citation before he got on the helicopter. Oh, my God. But it was, I mean, it was... If you read the after-action reports from the mission before that, and he did all those things and did them again, which would have been qualified for valor and, you know, a valorous gallant award, and that was Silver Star. So he wrote up the Silver Star. He was a strange guy, though. Indeed. And most of the time, like with Mac, Mac wrote me up for two bronze stars and a silver star. I never got the silver star. Because uh, when they closed the project out, it was still pending. And the C-21 that was carrying all the records back flew into the side of a mountain down near Natrang. Murphy actually ran the, the bright light on the plane crash. 
Was that right? Yeah, he said there was paperwork scattered all up in the trees and that, so they just naped the entire area and scorched it to the ground and that. And Mac and Cook tried to submit a later one. I said, hey, give it up, man. You know, that's the thing. I know what I did, and it wasn't that heroic. And if you're trying to get me an award, I suspect you're up to something. <laughs> so I didn't bother with it. But you've got a lot of guys that have gone back and you know tried to sure. get their awards updated. There's, there's a certain class of those people now that are trying to, I got a silver star, but I'm not happy with that. I should have a medal of honor. Yeah. And it just cheapens the award. You got a silver star, be happy with that. You earn that silver star. You're home now. You're home now. You know, you don't earn, you don't deserve a DSC. You don't deserve a medal of honor. Be happy with what you got. And the fact that you got peers that love and respect you up to this point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the vital part of the conversation. But anyways, um, I want to get back, mention the first book, We Few. The second book, Whispers in the Tall Grass. And these are excellent. They're well-written. The stories about SOG, Recon, one of our finest teams, and um, but also written with a style and panache that is second to none. Um, tell us a little bit about what we're going to get in the near future, sir. If you got a little extra time here, talk about your third book. And uh, um, I just the vagabonds took my glasses off here. Taurus in to the, the heart, heart of, the of darkness. That's right. Details my time as an exotic dancer in the Philippines. <laughs> mm. And that unfortunate <laughs> that was incident when you surrendered with that your waitress dream? at a truck stop in Montana. That's when you surrendered your dream of being a porn star? That would be the one. Okay. Vagabonds <laughs> uh, was a collective effort between myself and, <clears throat> and a gentleman named Jeff Miller. Jeff Miller and I met after Vietnam and were in uh, the 10th Special Forces Group together. and then Which was assigned where at the time? At Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And our swan song was the uh, was the uh, Iran hostage raid. You know, we both got out at the same time after the second one collapsed. And, really? Oh, you know, we were both both of us were involved in the first one on the peripheral, and then on the second one, I was going in with one of the assault teams, and Miller was was actually on the first one. He handled moving all those CH fifty threes around so the Russians wouldn't find out what we were doing. That's how they ended up with the sea stallions instead of the Jolly Greens. The Jolly Greens have the filters that keep the dust out of the engines. The sea stallions didn't, which was a major failure. in the Oh, day. yeah. But it was all done to keep the Russians from telling the Iranians, they're coming. You know, so, but when we got out, we formed a, a, a friendship that's lasted 50-some years. And we... We were doing things that eventually developed into the contractor industry. In those days, you go found somebody, convinced him that he needed something, and then showed up at his doorstep as the answer to his problem. <laughs> and we, we did a lot of that. We did kidnap recoveries in the Middle East, in Chechnya, in, uh, in Mexico, uh, Brazil, Colombia. We, did, uh, we trained... Um, Police forces in the United States under the International Association of Chiefs Police, uh, SWAT seminars. We did training for foreign countries like Taiwan, Korea, uh, Colombia, Brazil, a um, couple other places. 
best not unmentioned to train <laughs> special groups, you know, police and or, or military. Um, what else did we do? Computers verified. Well, let's just get people to, converted. Will, will your book be available for a pre-order? Yeah, it's available now. You can. You, it's on Amazon. I well, know please that. tell us. So Vagabonds is on Amazon now? It is on Am- Amazon. You can pre-order. All right. Yeah. And um, any uh, as we get down here at the end, uh, any last closing thoughts, anything you want to add or something we should cover? Just it's your time. Give me a moment. I'll give you two moments if you like. Now, I'm pleased to be here. I'm glad you guys have me in. There's so much to talk about with special projects. Indeed. Because special projects is the backbone of what we have now. The things that we did that we conceived and that, uh, and that we nurtured and then handed off to the next generation is what makes special operations so good today. Because we imbued in them not only the technical aspects, but the fact that you have to be a bit of a, of a, of a bastard child in order to survive in this business. And that, that was the one thing that I felt very proud of was the fact that group has always nurtured that. Up until recently, when when all the carpetbaggers and the when when they made when they made it a branch, right? That's what ruined it because now an officer could come in and stay in and stay in the branch. Before you were an infantry officer, artillery officer, chemical officer, you came to special forces, you punched your ticket, you moved on, and then you came back after you made field grade. Today they they grow up and. I think in a bubble, but the teams are the same. I've talked to a lot of enlisted men over the years and at different places. One thing that holds true, no matter how dark the night, no matter how dangerous the mission, if you show up at an MSS full of special forces with purloined booze and steaks, you're welcomed with open arms (laughs) as if you're a relative. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and if you have ammo, you get extra points. Indeed. Yeah. And, and and it's true. At the uh, team level today, we've had the uh, honor of meeting some of these team members at different groups in recent months. And uh, the young men that wear the funny-looking hat that keeps neither the rain nor the sun out of your eyes um, are the highest quality, perhaps a little bit better than we were in our day now. Oh, uh, they're smarter, better educated. No. I promised you I would never tell this. Indeed, you promised. But now that we're on live. I ran into the team sergeant (laughs) and the team when I was selling armored cars Uh over in Iraq. Who had found Hussein and Hussein's private car collection. (laughs) And they were selling them through the Kurds back into Germany and places like that. They were taking the money. And using it to pay their intel contacts. And the reason they were doing that was because when they got money from the from the military, a bunch of mucks up there at, at MI and that, and over at the post office in Langley, <laughs> when they get money from them, they had to write down who they gave it to, what the address was, what was for in that. And they were getting their, all their, they weren't getting info anymore because the, the opposition was killing them off because... They had the phones tapped or they knew some State Department guy or they were sleeping with some State Department guy and, <laughs> and got the information. So 
that innovativeness was still there. Indeed. They took that money from the sale of those cars, and they were paying their, their agents in hard cash. And take one dime for themselves. And take one dime to buy one case of, of booze or anything like that. Everything went back into the op fund. And for that, I feel extremely proud to know those guys. Indeed. I promised I wouldn't tell. I didn't give up your names, John. Yes, we will. But not today. We'll come back for a second session on the names to be given up. Well, Nick, thanks for joining us today. And again, uh, the three books are amazing reading. Um, just go to Nick Brockhausen and Amazon.com and take a look at the book. And there's many stories in there. We just scratched the surface, as Jocko would say, on this busy day. And we thank you for joining us. So at this point, I want to thank Jocko for having us do podcast number three today. And having an outstanding guest like this. We have more coming up soon. And uh, as we close out, we want to thank today's service members, our first responders, every everybody who's on the front lines, particularly with these times with the virus, and um, anybody in between, firefighters, and if I forget anybody, Nick, who do you think? Well, that thought will close, and, and we'll be back. And ships at sea. Ships at sea, indeed. Thank you. And until next time, God bless. God bless America. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.